Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for all things Kings of War. Join your hosts, Mark Zylinski, Jeremy Duval, and Rob Fanouf as they delve into the world of Mantica and bring you in-depth coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Russ Barnes. I'm Ben Stoddard. And I'm Mark Zelinsky. Welcome to the fourth installment of the Narrative Workshop. We're glad that you stopped by to spend a little time with us today. Tonight, we're going to talk about what I consider an incredibly interesting topic, and that is Siege in Kings of War. You're like, Siege in Kings of War? Mark, there are no rules for that. Ah, but there are. So tonight, as you heard, our special guest is Mr. Russ Barnes. And he's going to be talking all about the siege rules he has developed or been part of developing. And we're going to talk all about that. And then Ben is going to regale us with a little bit of, well, let's say narrative of sieges in Mantica. But we'll get to that after our commercial break. So <laughs> first, why don't we go ahead and start off. Russ, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the countercharge audience? Who is Russ Barnes? That's a good question. My mom always asked me that. Russ Barnes, uh, born up in Duluth, Minnesota, up there with Chris. Got started uh, in gaming probably before most of your listeners were born. In fact, I used to cast my own lead soldiers. Uh, first real game I really got into was Avalon Hill Naval War Game games. Uh, I always liked the knights, you know, like on the black and white TV in my day, watching the different uh, Ivanhoe and so forth. I uh, got my first castle probably when I was about 12 or 13. It was a Mark's Metal Castle. And so me and my buddies, we'd always have uh, sieges and things like that. Enjoyed Avalon Hill games. Been gaming for a long time. My son started getting into some of the board games uh, when he was about six or eight. He's 36 now, uh, Grant. And we play uh, Kings of War quite a bit. We've got a gaming group here called the Outlanders Gaming Guild. We meet on uh, Thursday night and Monday night, two different stores, and play Kings of War. Pathfinder, for the past couple years, I'll cut it there. Well, not not so quick there. Uh, you're an Avalon Hill gamer like myself, so which uh, Avalon Hill naval game did you cut your teeth on there, Russ? It was basically a leaflet. Now, we're going back to about 68, and it was just a rule set. We had uh, 1 to 2,500 scale uh, metal boats or wood boats. I mean, I didn't have the luxury of a lot of cash, so I actually built a bunch of U-boats out of wood, carved them to scale. Uh, But the board games, when they came out in the 70s, I liked uh, Tobruk and Panzerleiter were favorites. Dreadnought, uh, Trimarine, which was the Roman Greek naval battle games. Yeah, pretty much historical for a long time. I mean, we're talking Civil War, 
in fact, my dad, that's how I kind of got into it. He uh, introduced me to basically back then there were lead soldiers. And I actually casted a lot of lead soldiers when he was making, uh, he was a black powder shooter. So when he was making his lead bullets, I would be making my um, World War II soldiers and actually knights. I had still got the molds, by the way. They're about 32 millimeter, 35 millimeter scale. Pretty cool. Oh, I played the heck out of Tobruk. So I actually got involved, uh, Russ, with Avalon Hill. My very first uh, game was uh, Red Baron and uh, Luftwaffe. On my first uh, game day, my cousin Michael introduced me. So uh, you got me by a few years, but uh, good times back then. We were really at the cutting edge of uh, of the niche hobby back then. Well, you remember the board games that came out that were Broadside and uh, Skirmish, and there was another one, uh, I think it was called Red Baron, but it was they were Milton Bradley board games. And you had like the old plastic planes, you had the cards, you deal them out, you could do barrel rolls and so forth, yeah. Yeah, that one was Dogfight, if I recall correctly, and I think, uh, yeah, was it Ironsides? Or broadsides. I have it down in the basement, believe it or not. <laughs> so <laughs> so do I, Mark. So do I. <laughs> That's awesome. And if I recall correctly, uh, Chatting, you were an old Outrider like I was. Yeah, I started back in 99 with the Outrider program. There was one Outrider here in town. I don't know if you remember Paul Gephardt at all, but uh, yeah, those were the days when you had one grand uh, games day. And that was in uh, uh, Baltimore for a day and a half, and we used to go out there. That was a, that was good times. Absolutely, you you know, you and I had to be there at the same time because um, I don't know if you remember Games Day two thousand. That's when Mordheim came out, and uh, one of the guys and I put together the uh, Squeaks Assassin run, and we built all that, and we ran that all Games Day two thousand. So. Well, you remember when they built oh, the, the set where they had the Imperial Guard holding the, uh, what was it, an oil tower in the ocean? And they had yeah. the, yeah, well, I built that uh, long orc boat that had the flat top that they kept on piling orcs on and sending towards the uh, oil derrick. Oh, those were good times. You remember the plastic sprue dumps? Oh, yes, I do. Uh <laughs> oh, good times, good times. Yeah, we had to be there together. We just didn't know it at the time. Yeah, we probably bumped, uh, well, oh gosh, who were some of the guys? Well, uh, the key Pathfinder. Oh, yeah, T-Mac, yep. Yep. Yeah, he got me, I actually played my first 40K game with him. He had orcs, and I borrowed another guy's uh, uh, Space Wolves played at one of the nights. Remember when they used to get the rooms? Oh, yeah, I had the game nights, and uh, uh, my favorite party, and this is the last remembrance, Ben. I know we're boring the hell out of you, but... <laughs> no, you're good. I, I've, it's given me a chance to get on my stuff. So. <laughs> my favorite party was the one at Camden Yards. You remember that one? Uh, I remember the one at Embers. Wasn't it Embers? No, they actually had it at the ball yard, and it was actually at Camden Yards, and they had it in the big uh, executive party room up there. I, I don't think that was 2000, but it was one of those years. It, it was like one of the last years that Games Day was in Baltimore. It was a lot of fun. So. The last 
couple years, I went up to the one in Chicago because it was closer when they started doing the game stays. Uh, when they split them out, you had one in Chicago, one in wasn't there one in like L.A. and Yep, they had them all over the place. Yeah, I used to go to Chicago, too, because my cousin Tim lives about a mile and a half from the Stevenson Convention Center. So I'd go stay at his house. He'd drop me off at games day, and then I would just go hang out with him. So I didn't do a lot of interaction with anybody besides really much at games day. So, But good times, good times. So You missed the hotel because for a few years they had the, uh, a local, the uh, horror convention at that hotel so after we would do the game stay we'd run back over to the hotel and go into their uh, room or their convention and that was a hoot too oh man we had good times back then see so that's what we got to get uh pat to get the pathfinder program up to that level man that was those were good times good times well you know uh what i see and here, it just seems like the whole community is growing. You know, we've got more tournaments going on. And the tournaments that, you know, started a year or two ago with eight or ten people are now getting up to like 20. So to me, it's just a slow grow. It's, it's, it's going to get there. And you're absolutely right. You used to have to look for a tournament on a weekend two years ago. Now there's multiple tournaments on weekends and stuff like that. And, you know, I even have a hard time just even getting people booked on the show because there's so much going on. It's uh, it's actually a good problem to have. Yeah, it is. And I'm kind of glad to see it because I think it's really, to me, it's starting to balloon. It's in the last six months or so. And I bet you this next summer, with all the tournaments coming up, we started the March Hare which was a Warhammer Fantasy tournament back in 98. And we switched that over to be the third year. We've had it now that's Kings of War. We added the Warhammer Refugee tournament in the, basically in the wintertime. And then the Bug Eater, which is our two-day GT in June this year, it's five, six years, seven years old now. And it started with Warhammer fantasy and we switched that over to kings of war and it just slowly been growing oh yeah it's great to see all right ben the old timers are done talking here we're gonna wake you up over there and you're gonna be our tour guide for this episode so i'm gonna settle back and uh without further ado are you ready to start our journey ben absolutely let's go all right well we start off with the main question sieges why play them? Uh, I know for myself, uh, the idea of sieges, if you look at any medieval movie, the castles are a staple in any medieval or fantasy story. And we have a plethora of terrain in that that's available for people to purchase and build. And every time you go on a miniatures site, that's one of the main things that people are looking to build. Because the idea of a siege of those waves upon waves of soldiers marching up and and that outnumbered, you know, that last stand for that legion, you know, in their castle kind of thing that just captures a lot of people's attention is is why I think people are always wanting to pay, play siege battles. And there's a, there's a bunch of uh, – I've seen a, a couple of different rule sets thrown out there for a bit, um, but none of them seem to stick around, which is why I'm really glad we've got Russ here who uh, 
who seems to have built his own uh, set of rules that I actually really like. I think they're pretty cool. Uh, Russ, what about you? Why do you think sieges are so important? You know, for me, a siege, just like in a campaign or anything like that, you need something to throw in once in a while to, to change it up and get the players kind of together. To me, that's a good way of doing it. Plus, like you, Ben, I grew up watching movies and, you know, castles were pretty cool. And I, the first real siege rule set that I played was when Warhammer came out with the first siege rules. And they were okay, but a siege would take three, four hours sometimes to get through yeah. the people you had. Sometimes it was a whole day event. I but, felt like it was most Warhammer battles back in the day now, now that I've had some time in between it. They were really long battles. And then to add on top of that additional rules, yeah, I could see how that could get bogged down pretty quickly. And they came out with a second rule set. And then I played some other games, oh, years ago, a couple books and so forth. But when I started playing King's War and I started looking at it, and I was like, okay, I gathered all my data and started you know, hitting the website, and there were some ideas out there on the Mantic uh, blogs and websites, but none of them really seemed to hit it. So mm-hmm. wrote out the core rule set and took it to the uh, my guys. Like I say, we've got our own uh, gaming group, the Outlanders Gaming Guild. We've got our own Facebook page, too, where we kind of post a lot of this stuff and banter around and change the rules and added some stuff. And I wanted to put together a set that had to be simple. And I started looking at the Mantic rules and, you know, with the nerve, you know, the waiver and the route, it's like, ooh, you know, you could do that with yeah. the walls. And just started playing around with some things. And then add some of the siege equipment. And it's like, okay, you know, crushing strength, all that. Everybody's familiar with that. Phalanx or ensnare and so you could start playing around with that, and people would, could catch on, I think, quickly to the additional rules that you would be adding. Uh, and they aren't really additional as much as they are. You've got terrain pieces now that are treated kind of like uh, a unit. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've got a set of your rules that you sent us uh, here in front of me, and there's a lot of things that... I had thought about myself when we were when my group was trying to come up with some siege rules too. We just didn't have the 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 playtesting that it looks like you've put into it, and the and the thought process that you've gone into it. And that's it's actually pretty cool. I'm 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 liking what I what I see. Really quick before we get into the to the nitty gritty of it, I just I I know you're talking about how you you started out in historicals. That have any influence on how you on your siege rules that you came up for this, or did that have? Did any of the genesis of this idea come from that? Yeah, I mean to be honest with you, uh, my background is I do a lot of writing, technical writing process, do a lot of research. Okay. So when I go and look at stuff. I love researching, and as a kid, you know, we were always be looking at, oh, you know, they had catapult, oh, boiling oil, oh, what are these, what are caltrops, you know, never heard of them, you know, we research all this stuff, you'd find out all this arcane uh, weaponry that people would use, and so, you know, we had a, a 
history of it back then. So I tried to bring that into the rule set to give it a wide variety. Now, I'm also uh, the type that if people have ideas or comments or anything like that, I'm well open to uh, criticism, negative, positive, whatever it be, because to me, the end goal is to come up with a good rule set that everybody can use. So, so this is a collaborative uh, effort between you and your group then, right? Yeah. I mean, when I put it out there, they started hammering on it, and it was, well, in fact, uh, I just sent you an update. Uh, yeah, I've got that one up. <laughs> some of the guys were saying, you know, Russ, the walls are too too high a nerve. Nobody's going to get through that. And it's like, okay. And I had to go back and remember what we, what I tweaked. Well, I didn't take into consideration uh, Thunder's charge. So I upped the nerve on the walls trying to take care of Thunder's charge. And what we did is we just made the castle walls phalanx, which would take away Thunder's charge. But I didn't readjust the castle walls nerve. Mm-hmm. And also their, uh, their defense, too. We lowered it a little bit. The goal was to get the siege engines to the wall by turn three. That's why the siege engines only move eight inches themselves. Now, you can have other things like werewolves or uh, ogres that have crushing strength two, for example, could get up there in two turns and start hammering on the walls or trying to climb them. But they're kind of at a little disadvantage, but, you know, it kind of keeps the people at the walls busy and maybe less attention at blowing up your siege towers, too. Yeah, and that actually brings up an interesting thing that I noticed in your rule set is most of the time when you see people discussing siege rules that I've noticed, it's been the attacker has like 50% or, you know, 25% or they have a smaller army. But in your rule set... You set it up saying that both sides should have the same amount. And in fact, you say you suggest that between 1,500 and 2,000 points is the ideal, is like the sweet spot for your rule set. Yeah. And I think you could even go bigger, but you'd have to increase the wall size. See, a lot of yeah. it has to do with the, you know, how much frontage you're trying to go after. What we found is we started with uh, the defender being 50% less. And we just, after about a half a dozen games, I mean, the defender never won. They were just getting steamrolled. So we bumped mm. up 75%, and then we did sort of think, well, they could be even because the attacker has the mobility, but the defender is kind of closed in, so it kind of evens up, really. Uh, we were finding that there wasn't really a big advantage. It just depended on shooting from the defender and a lot of it has to do with your army compositions of both forces like anything you can you can game the system you've got a door player with like you know 15 cannons or something like that you know 15 artillery pieces he can shred yeah. the wall but he may not have enough troops to take the castle too so we're finding out that that kind of pretty much evens out it out uh, we also uh, one of the guys plays undead, so by turn two, you know, he surged everything in. It's like, okay, well, we, we can't have that with, 
you know, the siege towers by turn two are at the wall. So that's yeah. another reason why we made them eight inches. Okay. So with this rule set, are you are you looking more for a narrative approach, or would you think that this could be used in a in a competitive setting? I think it's more campaign narrative. You could probably have it at a uh, like at a convention or something like that for people just to kind of run it the castle. But okay. competitively in like a tournament or anything, I don't really see that. But for narrative and you know like campaigns, I put one together that was called North and South, and depending on how you know who won, you know good or evil, determine the next scenario. And then the last scenario was a, a, a siege where whoever was winning was attacking whoever was losing's castle, for example. So you yeah. can set things up like that, for example. Yeah, I, I definitely could see something like this being like the crown jewel of a campaign where you've built up to this big thing and you as the game master, the person that's running the campaign, is is preparing to set it up so that that final battle has a lot of cool terrain and has a lot of uh, – there's there's some emotional investment in defending, you know, that heroic last stand or, you know, if we can storm the castle and kill the evil sorcerer, we can save the princess or whatever it is that you've, that you've built the story up to at that point. So I definitely – I, I see what you mean with that, and th- and that's kind of the feeling that I was getting from this. Is it while it does seem very balanced, it does seem like there's a certain amount of social contract between the attacker and the defender as to okay, we're going to get together, we're actually going to you know construct a realistic scenario. You can't just build a, a list that's just a smash face at the um, on the castle because that wouldn't make sense in a real army kind of thing. So I, I get what you're saying is that the, the system does seem like it's pretty well balanced and that there's there's a good opportunity for both sides to win based off of what you guys have play tested. Um, but it definitely, I think, uh, requires some some forethought and some communication beforehand and some of those unspoken agreements between the right. two players that that it works that way before if, if you're going to get the maximum enjoyment out of it. Now, do you think that um, that's just the the nature of the beast with siege rules or do you think that um, there just isn't enough draw for it to be a tactical or well, not tactical. I don't want to use that word, but not uh, a competitive setting thing because there is definitely tactics involved with the siege, but it's got to be a little bit different than what is no, what a normal game would be like. And so therefore it kind of takes you out of that, that chess um, feeling that you get from an open field battle that is the, you know, the bread and butter of, of Kings of war. So to rephrase my question again for you, cause I kind of <laughs> went off on a tangent there. Do you think that siege scenarios are, it wouldn't be possible to make them a uh, tournament kind of setting, or do you think it, that it, the, the type of players that would be drawn to it are more of the narrative players kind of thing? I think it can be competitive uh, because being an attacker, you have to figure out how are you going to hit the castle, for example. And as a defender, you have to figure out your weak spots, how are you going to shore up, especially like your army. If your army doesn't have any shooting, for example, do you want to take? And that's why I have the siege equipment listed, and I give it certain point values per 400 point, 500 point value. So... At a uh, 2,200 point list, you get like 10 siege points, roughly. Now, 
you can take bolt throwers, you can take, you know, whatever you kind of have as a weakness if you're defending it to help bolster that. You can also set up where you're shooting and then maybe you swap out troops. You know, one troop steps down, another troop steps up that's maybe your swordsman. So you can kind of get into those scenarios where you're trying to figure out the best approach. If you got cavalry inside the castle, you can open up the castle door and, you know, hit the attacker's flank. It can be competitive. In a tournament scene, it'd be interesting to try to tackle how would you do that? Because how would you do game turn to game turn? Who would be attacker? Who would be defender? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Unless you do like a team thing where you have two players and one player is an attacker, one's a defender, and they swap, you know, and you could kind of pair them up as like a team tournament and just try it out. Like that would that. be an interesting idea. That way they, you could have two players playing a thing and say, you're going to build a defensive list, I'm going to build an offensive list, but or maybe make that random as to, you know, you roll a dice and odd this player goes and bees the defender and even this player goes but but you have that option of being both that would actually be kind of cool for a for a team tournament that 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 is a cool idea i like that because what you could do is for turn one and let's say ben you and i are a team well in game one you're the attacker i'm the defender okay for game two we swap you're defending and i'm attacking but with the same army so you kind of have to try and balance so you could both attack and defend, which would give you kind of the, can I say that? It would balance it out more because you couldn't really fortify to attack or defend and be totally successful doing the opposite. That could be interesting. And then you could have places for best overall um, siege masters, and then you could have a best offensive team and a best defensive team. That might be interesting. I, I, I think there's a lot of potential uh, for Siege stuff. I think there's got to be a way to make Siege, and in reality, this isn't how a real historical Siege would be done because a real historical Siege was more, okay, we're going to camp around you, cut off your food supply, and wait for you to starve to death, right? Right. So this is obviously the, the cinematic Lord of the Rings, Helm's Deep kind of thing where exactly. just for just for coolness factor, basically. But there's still there's still that aspect of storytelling, which if we're playing a fantasy game, you're craving after on one level or another, because if you're just looking for the strategic value, you can go play chess or something along those lines without all the unnecessary, you know, aspects of painting and modeling and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. So, yeah, no, that's that's awesome. So do you want to give us a quick run through of your rules then so that we can get a, a good idea of kind of what inspired you for those things and basically the highlights of the thing and what sets your siege rules apart from regular from just a regular game of kings of war what would what are some things that you think are that you're really proud of and that you think are really selling points to this to the to your siege rules for one there are siege rules for kings of war which i you know it's it's a first step with it because from what I could see, there really wasn't anything solid that I could find. In the past, uh, some of the rules and some of the gaming systems, like I said, took a long time. These rules, I mean, we start gaming by 6 o'clock and, and we're done by 8, 30. 
So it doesn't take a lot of time to go run through a siege either. You know, if that's using 2,200 points, for example. So a good-sized battle, then. Yeah, yeah. And for 10 siege points, the way that the point systems are allocated, uh, you can have, like, three siege towers, a small battering ram, or a couple big battering rams, and two siege towers. So, you know, you can get a lot of equipment in there, and the defender can get choices of caltrops or boiling oil and things of that nature to help defend once they get either the gate or the castle wall. The rules, I tried to keep them short, but they kind of turned out to be probably about 18 pages. First couple pages, just getting people acquainted to what a siege is, recommendations for army size. I even threw in a few pictures of uh, castle setups. Uh, the one in the lower right, believe it or not, is made out of poster board foam for that my son made in like seventh grade. So it can make out of just pretty much anything you want to. The other two are uh, GW castles. Yeah, I saw that one and I'm familiar with that one. It's the one I think that most people who've been in the hobby for a while are going to have a copy or have something like that or have access to that. And honestly, everybody's listening. This is Mark. Are we going to be able to put like a link to the siege rules or something like that in the show notes or something of that nature? Oh, absolutely. I was going to ask Russ how everybody could get a hold of those. So we'll definitely put a link in there. And then, you know, when we get to shout outs and stuff like that, we'll go over that in more detail. So. Yeah. And if absolutely. you want to put them on your site and we've got them out on, we've got a Facebook page to the Outlanders that people can go to and ping me directly or pick them off the files. I'm good either yeah. because the more exposure this gets and the more feedback I get, the cleaner, the better, and uh, that's, to me, the goal. I was going to say, this is a very good-looking document as it is, but, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You can oh, go ahead and go back where you're <laughs> Sorry. Uh, gaming areas, 6 by 4 table, and then deployment of terrain and troops, defender and attacker. Basically have it so that, you know, you can do... I put out a unit, you put out a unit. A lot of times we just set up in Defender. Since they're in the castle, they can move some of their troops around because you would think they'd see you off in a distance, and in reality they could kind of move around a little bit. Uh, who goes first? I have it. The attacker goes first. Duration, just six turns, and then you roll for a seventh turn. Then I have just recommended siege victory conditions. I mean, you can have... The standard 10%, you can have, I've actually got a little well that I put inside the castle, and whoever controls the well, or you can, you know, another cool thing is, is you can have uh, two towers or four towers, depending on how you want to set your castle up, and you can put a damsel in there, and then whoever the attacker is has to find the damsel. So you can have all kinds of different objectives yeah and some now correct me if i'm wrong but the way that you have it as set up and deployment on that is you deploy the the defender deploys the walls almost like they're an extra like drop for their list am, am i misinterpreting that no and that's actually really cool because that, that opens up a whole bunch of different ways that you can set up the wall so it doesn't have to be the box that we're used to necessarily right it could just it could be an angled thing or could they even 
quartered off a corner of the board or something like that, kind of do a refused flank kind of thing? You know, it's open. You know, you could have a tower with just some walls around it because I made some, like, keeps. I don't know if you remember the old first block molds. Have you ever met with them? I have never played with those, actually, no. Uh, Hearst is a company, and they make these little rubber molds, and you use plaster Paris or hydro. Oh, okay. And you cast them, and you can make towers, you can make anything you want, buildings and so forth. Well, I've made, you know, like crumpled up little um, fortresses, you know, where it's only two to three blocks around, and you got a tower. You can do the same thing kind of with that. We've got the tower, more or less, that would be... You know, have the nerve and the little walls. You know, you'd have to figure out something a little different, but it wouldn't take much. Man, that, and see, that's a really cool aspect to me because that's something that I've never really seen. Is usually the the walls are set up like any other train is. You know, they're pre set up before the army start to set up, kind of thing. Whereas, and and, and I, I just thought that was a cool aspect of it that it that it kind of changes the deployment and the tactics therein with that. So there's something else that adds to it. And then. Uh, Section 3 is basically siege equipment. I go over the castle terrain, the castle walls, the castle tower, gates, and gatehouse. And then a little bit about castle terrain, combat ground. A few examples of, you know, if you're on the wall and the attacker's coming towards you, who can uh, attack the attacker? So if you're kind of like corner to corner on an attacker, that defender can also attack you know, on their turn. If they're on the walls, I just more or less have it set up to where, you know, there isn't really a frontage on a wall. I mean, you've got the sides in the front, but everybody's kind of fighting at the same time. So I just treat the left flank, right flank, and the front. There's no double attacks for a flank. Now, if that unit gets hit in the rear, that's a different story. So flyers could be huge in this situation. Yes, and I also take an account for them because we found that, uh, you know, flyers can really ruin your day in a castle. So we made a, actually gave them siege equipment points. If you have a flyer, it costs you three siege points, which means you can't have more than three flyers, basically. Okay, so that's good to know for list constriction then. Yeah, and, you know, that can be, again, when you're setting it up, and depending on what armies you have, you know, you can kind of look and say, okay, you know, this looks right or this doesn't look right. Charging the walls and routing, a little bit on castle towers, like walls that are height three, uh, the gatehouse is height four, and the castle towers are height five. And then attacking castle terrain, basically gave the walls, the tower, the gatehouse, the gate, and also threw in a reinforced gate. They have a defense value and a nerve value. So, for example, for a wall, it has a defense seven. So you got to have at least a crushing strength something to yeah. attack the wall. And that it makes has sense a, that a bunch of goblins throwing spears at it wouldn't do too much against it. So that actually makes yeah. sense to me. So. And the walls also have phalanx. So, you know, you can't get thunderous charge, crushing strength to bane chanted, you know, to take it that it. Kind of, I also looked at Thunder's Charge. What would that do against a wall? Really not much. It's true. 
and the nerve is 15. So, you know, after a few good rounds, you could actually knock the wall down. And yeah. Little idea, you know, little things on shooting at the walls, shooting units on the walls, and attacking walls, towers, and gates. Castle wall, tower, gatehouse, you know, just some things on uh, when it does get destroyed. Castle terrain becomes height zero. It's just treated as difficult terrain. I have a question that I know all the power gamers out there are going to want to know. What's that? How does that? How does Alchemist's Curse work against this? You know, I was looking at that, and I'll have to test that out, really, because I was. We were talking about that because like, we just got the uh, cocky team books here a few weeks ago, and I don't know. I'd try it. I'd, I'd let them use it. And uh, that's a lot of that. That's a lot of shots that they're using on a wall that isn't really giving them any massive victory points. But at the same time, that seems like it would be the most effective way to take down those walls because they'd always be missing. They wouldn't wound on a six. I think that's the, the way thing, all things work because it's just like uh, with wounds, you always miss on a one, but it's reversed with that. So, right. I mean, I would, I would let it go and, and just see how it works out because you've got one mage doing all the damage – and you take out the mage with some shooting, too. So, you know, yeah. you get some recourse of action. And then when the wall falls down, whatever's on top of it, there's a little damage table, a uh, number of hits that it takes. Yeah, and that's kind of reminiscent of uh, Warhammer. I remember that kind of stuff with, uh, like, when the giant falls down. And I, and I vaguely recall that with the siege rules from Warhammer, too, is there was things that could happen to different individuals or something when when a building collapsed or something along those lines. I, I vaguely recall that from my Warhammer days. Yeah, you know, it was just a way to, you know, take, a troop could take, you know, some damage. Absolutely, and it gives us some narrative to it as well. True. Yeah, and you certainly don't want to be a legion because, what is that, 60 hits on an infantry legion? Wow! Yeah, but if, if they're my uh, zombies, who cares? Just raise them back another day. I say note to self: Don't put the don't put the zombies in the towers. They they probably won't get used too much there. No. Also, go over siege engines like ropes and ladders, large battering ram, small siege tower, siege tower with ram, shield wall, flyers, fire pots, dwarf minefields, caltrops, rocks, heavy crossbows, boiling oil, Greek fire, uh, gatehouse defenses, and an upgraded gate. And it goes. They have filled out the melee range, defense, attacks, attributes, siege points, and uh, a nerve value if it applies. And then after that, I just talk about like ropes, ladders, and the different equipment pieces uh, in a little more detail. Just threw in some pictures on some of the equipment, uh, kind of how they are used. And then additional rules for siege equipment. Burning fire, like the Greek fire, how you can use that, especially if you shoot it on like a uh, siege tower. You know, they have to turn it out. Anything flammable. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I like to burn things. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, molts, which I haven't played with a lot, but I threw the idea in there so people could like play around with it. And then just uh, camping. Uh, game ideas. And in the back, I just uh, kind of put the references of stuff, practical wargaming, 
by uh, Wesson Craft. That was probably the first book I really bought that had any gaming rules in it. And it basically took you from the uh, Egyptians all the way up to Black Powder. And then just some of the other things, siege rules, and so forth, and some thank yous. And that's pretty much the rundown. Awesome. It, it, it's a really well put together packet. I mean, I've, I've been reading through it, and I have a hard time with uh, abstract concepts that I can't, like when it comes to stuff like rules and and things like that. I really struggle sometimes until I actually sit down and can play the game. Um, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to do that with these rules yet, but it makes sense to me because it seems to be building very heavily off of the basic core concepts that we already know in Kings of War and just adding some flavor to it, basically, and some different options that we might not get um, in this. And and the cool thing that you've said, like that you've already said, is this is, this is an open rule set. If you don't like something, it's just like a regular thing. It's You're probably not going to see this in tournaments, so you don't have to learn the rules down pat. If there's something that you don't, that doesn't work for your particular group or somebody's found a way to break it in your meta, you can switch it up pretty easily so that it's meant, because it's meant to be that fun, kind of chaotic and, and new experience that really, you know, pushes it in a different direction. So no, I, I really like the packet. I think it works really well. And there's a lot of potential for that, uh, for use in like campaigns, like you were saying, or, or even I would love to see like a, huge 10,000 point battle fought with these rules. I think that'd be really cool to see. It'd be very cinematic. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure that it'd be the most strategic battle because it'd be a lot of pushing stuff forward and trying to smash walls down, but it would look really, really cool. I think you're right that the sweet spot's about 2000 points for it to be, you know, the most challenging kind of thing. But I think it offers a whole lot of potential for some really cool moments for between a, between a group of players and a group of friends that just sit there and, and just throw some dice at each other in a way that allows them to build their own story in their head as to how this is going. Well, and you can also have, you know, if you've got odd players too, if you've got three players, you know, you can have two two attackers, one defender. And Absolutely. You can actually, uh, you know, have, let's say, 4,000 points going after 2,000 points in the castle. How long can the castle hold? And maybe even give them more siege points that are in the castle so they can buy more tools and toys to play with, but even though they have less troops. Yeah. I mean, the sky is kind of the limit on how you want to play it. Like I say in the intro, you know, I mean, this this is like the pirate's code. You know, they're more guidelines, you know, but it's a rule set, you know, so how you want to make it. And I was going to say, too, for anybody that's an Adepticon that is attending uh, Mantic Night, I'll be running a a siege using these rules that night. That's awesome. Yeah, this this whole thing, though, the rule set that you said, every last one of us has had the thought of, you know, it'd be really cool with some siege rules that would work. And we've all had, I, I can see snippets of my own thought process in what you've written out. The thing of it is, is that you've actually solidified it, brought it to the foreground, said, look, here's a set of rules. You can build this as your bedrock. Go with it, you know, go forth and build kind of thing. And it's got something for everybody. It's got model. The modeler in me is going crazy over the idea of building siege towers and siege equipment and all that kind of stuff. And 
the storyteller in me is going even more crazy because like we've already talked about, that's one of the biggest, coolest scenes in any story is when, you know, the defenders are holding out against the impossible odds kind of thing. So there, there's a little bit of something in everything. And the cool thing about this packet is that it, it solidifies all those ideas that everybody has had in one form or another, but you've actually taken the time to take them down, play test them, put them into practice, and you're still open for feedback on it. And, but it's, it's a set of rules that it's there for everybody to play with, basically. Yeah, and everybody that, you know, like yourself, Ben, you know, you've, you've had ideas and you've got ideas. And if, you know, you can take this and say, oh, you know, here's something that Russ forgot. I'll blast him an email. What do you think about this? Can you put this in? Or we don't understand, you know, so we can get the clarity and broaden areas that need to be, you know, broadened too. Which is an absolute strength of the, the Kings of War community is that most of the stuff that we have is community driven. I mean, from tournaments and setups and podcasts like this one, it's it's a lot of community driven stuff. And I, I think that it's probably one of the more supportive uh, gaming communities that I've ever been part of. And so I think I think you'll be getting a couple emails and some feedback from it because it seems like you're genuinely interested in hearing back from everybody and saying, hey, this worked, this didn't work here, and this is why, right? Right. And, you know, to me, this is something I want to build upon. The other thing I've got in the back of mind, which I don't know if you ever played Man of War. I've heard of it, and I've never played it, though. Awesome game. Well, think of this. What would happen if you took some rules... And everybody's got those Pirates of the Caribbean little cardboard ships laying around. You get my drift? Doing some dock battles, seems. Well, you could have your troops, your troop transports being protected by your fleet. Other fleet attacks, sinks one of your ships. Okay, you've got your troops assigned to your troop transport, so you've just lost that. So when you hit the island to attack somebody now you've got to figure out how to do that with less troops or if you land successfully you take the island but the other part is suppose when vanguard comes out how is this going to work with the castle you take the castle and then maybe whoever wins or if you have a damsel and then you can have a tower fight to get the damsel Or you have ships attacking the castle on one side. So there's all kinds of stuff. I don't know, my mind, my little mind keeps on turning. Absolutely, and that's one of the cool things about Kings of War that they're starting to do, is they're starting to make it so that you can focus on different levels of battle. So you've got the big, drawn-out, the big picture Kings of War battle, um, and what you're suggesting is going even further out to the point where we have like convoys and 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 um, ships and naval battles and things of that nature leading up to a siege where we got. And then we can zoom all the way in with Vanguard where we have an elite strike force that's going in to maybe cut the drawbridge so that it falls down so that there's a, the gates already open or something of that nature. Well, and, uh, when you get the castle or whatever, then you do you could do a dungeon with uh, Dungeon Saga. Absolutely. So you can go in even further. Yeah. 
I mean, that's what I kind of liked in the old days where you had different scales that you could kind of play off of. You could use one to set something else up, and then you could kind of you know, move from one. And I see Kings of War, Vanguard, Siege, Dungeon Saga. You know, you can you can fit all this together yeah. pretty nicely and run some very nice campaigns for your gaming groups. And, you know, the Indeed. interest, that's the key with any game organizer is to keep things fresh and keep things interesting for the gamers to come and, and play. Because not everybody wants to come and just play straight kill. You know, we've got some great scenarios now with different tokens and so forth. Set up a campaign, and you're talking about uh, campaigns. I don't know if you remember uh, Board Princess. When that came out, it was like a territory map, and it had like different territories drawn from one to a hundred nodes and it had a couple little towns well you could do the same concept and where the towns are <laughs> as the town has a castle now so if you want to take that frame piece you have to do a siege you know you can you can really take it out of the box so to speak that's awesome well, that it, it sounds like we've got a lot of really good ideas and a lot of things like that. Mark, do we want to slide into a commercial break really quick? And on the other side, we can talk about uh, some some fluff applications and some story ideas for siege rules and that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've got a couple other questions to go along with this as well. So, yeah, why don't we go ahead and slide in a commercial break? We'll come back on the other side, and we will continue our discussion on sieges. <laughs> Is that you, the ghost of Christmas past? No, I'm the ghosts of podcast future. I'm intrigued. Do tell me more. The future of podcasts is written in real time. I know it sounds oxymoronic, but it's not. Where can I find this podcast? And how many doubloons will that cost me? It's free! Run like my soul! You boy, what day is it today? It's Canada Day, it seems. Well, go buy that biggest Christmas goose in the window. That makes no sense. I'm just taking your money and leaving. VinlandOldTimeRadio.Podbean.com This is Eric Trowbridge, 2017 Adepticon Clash of Kings champion, and you are listening to Countercharge. And welcome back. All right, well, during that discussion, I kept having one question nagging in the back of my mind. And as I was looking through your rule set, Russ, I, I was seeing a lot of the models that you were using for the siege equipment and stuff like that. So what type of uh, models are you using for the siege uh, equipment and things like that? And, you know, how are you finding it to go out and buy siege equipment? So, but let's start with the first question. What kind of siege equipment are you using? Towers and battering rams, etc. Okay, good question. The castle that I have is a uh, Games Workshop castle I bought probably 20 years ago. 
I've actually made some things out of Hearst blocks. Uh, we have a uh, underground dwarven castle where it's got, you know, like you're in a cavern and you just have this Hearst block walls going from side to side. And then, like I said, that foam core castle was built years ago. And, you, you know, you just need to two sides, a bottom, you know, make some uh, parapet, you know. That's what I've used for castles. And like I said, uh, growing up, I had a metal one. Actually, that was metal walls with a plastic top with the moraines on it. The siege equipment, I'll be honest with you, I just picked that up over the years. They were games workshop, battering rams. Uh, they were a pretty good looking model. A little kind of pain in the rear end to put together because they're all metal. The siege towers, I will say, were probably one of their better models because it's plastic. They glue together, they're pretty sturdy. And I, through the years, I picked up three of those. I've got four battering rams, the large ones. And then for the smaller ones, they're metal ones. I think they're Games Workshop also. But you can just take a piece of wood, put some handles on it, I mean, you can see it from the picture. And what's nice about Kings of War is since everything's on a base size, like my rat ogres, I just stick it on there, and it's like they're kind of holding it. And, you know, so that you know that that unit's got the smaller battering ram. The oil pots and the rock slings were games workshop but really that would be pretty easy to model just out of balsa wood you can even just have little barrels of rocks or troughs of rocks that you can just put up there for the bolt throwers for that you can buy for the defenders i just take like a round token and just set on the unit itself so that you know that it has one uh, just more of a representation, although you could, you know, just model a large um, scorpion or bolt thrower for that. So the hell traps and things that are the, the traps on the ground, I just got a piece of, you could use a piece of felt, you could use a piece of paper just to represent the six by six area. And we've even used just like tokens outlining so that when a unit goes in there to attack the wall, it starts taking the hits. The catapults and things that are used by the attacker are pretty much whatever the attacker has. You know, if they have cannons, war machines, uh, whatever the case may be. Rock lobbers work pretty good. But that's where, you know, not everybody has that. So that's why I have some of that siege equipment that you can, you can buy kind of even it up for that. All right, great. Yeah, I didn't know if there was... Uh, I'm sure there's some other companies out there that make siege equipment, so it's just something to kind of keep your eye open for, too, because I know a lot of that Games Workshop stuff's hard to find nowadays. Buddy Rich, he was at uh, uh, Mantic Day last year. He saw that, and he says, oh, and he does kind of his own form casting, and he was thinking about making some siege towers and stuff like that, so... There's going to be more of that out there. In fact, you could probably pick up 25 millimeter scale 
from uh, like the Romans and so forth. And I bet you it's out there. Right, right. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be fantasy. It's not historical and sieges. In fact, somebody told me they bought a pretty reasonable castle somewhere, too, for like, I want to say like 30, 40 bucks. Oh, very, very cool. All right, good. Well, that'll give us some ideas for our modeling when we want to get into this. So, well, this is the narrative workshop, Ben. So I know that you've done some research, and I know that the fluff in Mantica is not extensive. So uh, did you find any siege material I only found out there? hints and whispers, because most of the time when they talk about a significant battle, it's a, it usually makes it sound like it's a an open field battle kind of thing. Um, it does mention, of course, we talk about this when we talk about Basilia, but um, the the Imperial Dwarves have tried to take that, uh, have tried to take the Golden Horn from Basilia a couple times, and once they even came within, you know, cannon shot of the walls kind of thing. But I, I'm not sure that would be the most exhilarating uh, scenario for the Dwarven players to, to play out against the Basilian player is, you know, we're going through your first of 17 walls or whatnot. Um, but it does mention a couple other ones that I that it kind of mentions. One of those is Ironhold, which is one of the king is the current king of the Freed Dwarfs, and it's their one of their capital cities that they have. And Thoric Rockfist, who's one of their kings, uh, he that's his home city. But there's rumors that it's now a graveyard, and that uh, Morgoth, who has uh, gone extremely quiet in the current Mantica fluff, but Morgoth, the uh, the necromancer, has uh, the rumor is that he's taken that city and that now it's just a just a pile of bones and a bunch of zombies shambling around kind of thing. And I that to me screams like it would be a good scenario or a good campaign for either to reenact that battle of uh, Morgoth taking Ironhold or of another army being sent to investigate and having to lay siege to Morgoth's forces outside of the outside of the city and charging in. Beyond that, I took a couple notes of some notable cities uh, that seemed to me to be begging um, for a siege. One of those is Tyrus's Gate uh, up in the Bitterlands. He's the Tyrus is the king of the Ice Kindred, which is a relatively new kindred of elves and it even talks about him in the book this is from the main rule book the uh player's edition or not the player's edition but the the hardback copy okay. and it says this is uh it says this is tyrus's gate at his command it will pull back with a chill groan fit to shatter the heavens this makes the bitter lands an unassailable fortress which if anything we know about in stories and books especially in the fantasy things is anything that's unassailable will eventually be assailed and yeah. will fall so uh, that right there, and it says, should an, any enemy of the elves make it over the seas or the ice, then they must deal with the ice-tipped spears and implacable hostility of the island's inhabitants and their terrible storms. And so that one right there just screams to me, that one's begging for a campaign of some sort, maybe a campaign day or maybe another global campaign where that happens and something, because there's got to be something in the Bitterlands. I mean, they did spend an entire World War fighting winter, for crying out loud. So there has to be something about that that would be worth uh, attacking Tyrus's gate. Um, you got Cairn Gullock, which is the Imperial Dwarves, uh, well, it's King Gullock's uh, fortress and stronghold, and which is, you know, it's built by the dwarfs, so it's got to be huge and nigh on impregnable and 
So there's got to be, but there isn't a whole lot of information on that one. There's the Culloch Moor, which I think could be used as a, an adaptation, especially since that was one of the sites for um, one of the big battles in the global campaign or the summer campaign, the Edge of the Abyss thing, because it's right there across the Great Cataract. It's like the neutral ground um, where the the free dwarves and the imperial dwarves will come and they'll they'll exchange there. So I could see that being a big time attack from the abyssal dwarves that are trying to once again build that bridge that they failed to do this time around and do that. And then there's the the abyssal dwarf cities of Zarek and Deu. Do I don't know how to pronounce that one. It's D-E-I-W. So it's probably something that I'm totally destroying. But um, these are twin cities that are right next to each other. And it's where the Abyssal Dwarves are. And they have their own sacrificial piers where they will take people out and throw them into the Abyss. So it's right there. From what I understand, it's right there on the edge of the Abyss. So you've got, you know, the abyss behind them. So you can't attack from behind. There's only one front that you can attack from. So I imagine that would be a pretty intense siege if it were were to happen. Um, and so those are some of the, the the bigger cities. I mean, the Brotherhood, as we all know, the way they got around having to have a siege battle there is they just swallowed the city's whole into the abyss. So they're rebuilding. Yeah, that will be so exciting. Uh, I mean, unless you want to start a battle where the uh, towers all fall right away. So. It would be a timed thing. Every turn you roll a dice, and if it hits a certain number or something like that, the tower falls or something along those lines. That could be a very interesting. Actually, that wouldn't be a bad idea. It would be kind of cool if you roll a d6, and if it's the turn level or behind for each piece of terrain. So on turn one, it's not likely that it's going to happen. But each turn, it keeps getting more and more, and it could collapse into the abyss, basically. So that could be an interesting idea. That that actually would yeah. be kind of cool and cinematic in its own way. Um, but I think that also those Brotherhood players out there that are desperately waiting for their own fluff, that could be where they, because Mantic has already confirmed that some of the Brotherhood have gone to match with the Northern Alliance. And I imagine that there's probably going to be some connection to Tyrus. So we have our lead into a siege battle there where the Brotherhood could be involved with that. Honestly, the idea of the knights being stuck behind the walls and the gates opening up for them to get their charge in would be an epic thing because it makes total sense that that would the door is the ultimate chaff unit to block the way for the bad guys. And they just open up and the, and the Brotherhood charge out, get a free charge no matter what. It just seems to make sense to me in that way. And it's very cinematic. You know, it's very much a last charge out of Helm's Deep yeah. kind of thing. And so there, there's, there's, there, there's definitely options for, uh, for siege battles, obviously. But again, like I've said, I've looked at several. And, and here's the thing that gets really tricky is you have some armies – that would not even have a fortress. For example, like the Night Stalkers, do they have like shadow citadels back in the rift that's just opened up? Do they have actual things? Because they don't have real physical bodies. They're planar apparitions. So do they actually need a physical location to defend? They have the fortress of the mind. I mean, when they when you do the siege, your mind is what creates what you're facing. That could be very interesting. They could, you could come up with a whole host of rules for night stalkers, but because 
And honestly, ideally, they're not the best suited army for assaulting a castle. And it doesn't make sense that they would have a castle. But having special rules where maybe they'll pop up behind somebody or if somebody gets wavered, that like a unit gets wavered, maybe they pop up behind them or to the side of them or in front of them or something along those lines, because that's how the Night Stalkers enter the world kind of thing is through fear and through strong emotion. So that could be something that might be an interesting take on it. But then you also have other armies like the forces of nature and the herd. The herd, I can almost see having like some hunting lodge in the deep woods kind of thing that they've built up as a defense against something. But the forces of nature are adamantly against that. They would definitely be on the attacking end of something. But I don't know if the Green Lady would deign to to enter a man-made fort to defend herself. And and the groves, I guess you could see, I could see like you know, a la this Sleeping Beauty kind of thing, a, a hedge maze of thorns kind of thing coming up and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I, I'm not sure if there would actually be siege scenarios with them where they would be more likely to melt into the forest, come around and hit you as you're trying to march out kind of thing, rather than putting themselves all in one spot. No, that's true, but the trees could also form their own fortress or something like that. The briars could grow a wall of thorns and, you know, things like that. You know, if you're caught and you don't have a way out. Absolutely. You know, you've got, uh, you know, Mr. Berman's uh, goblins running all over the place trying to burn the forest of Galahir down. And, uh, you know, you're trapped, you know, let's say you're trapped against a sheer rock face. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the, and yeah, that a couple would be of, interesting, right? Well, and then you could actually have the walls being able to strike back where they're living wood kind of thing, maybe even. Oh, there you go, Russ. You could give attack factors to the uh, to the towers and stuff. That would be cool. But <laughs> if you, like you say, the living wood or trees, I mean, you could have a massive tree or even like towers. Uh, the other yeah. thing, too, is just uh, like the old Celtic... Uh, Hill forts, you know, they weren't really made out of uh, brick and mortar or stone. They were more or less dug out of hills. And they can yeah. have them like on the plains areas as more of their um, barracks for their um, scouting and patrol parties, too. Which know. leads to a whole nother golden opportunity for these siege rules with the, with the wall in Artovicia. Because that one, evil didn't even try in that one, and so the wall went up almost without contest. I mean, there was a couple of little skirmishes, but for the most part, Artovicia was kind of left by itself. And so they've got this massive wall that's built across these plains that's just begging for someone. It, it's like, you know, Mulan... You know, they they built the wall to challenge me kind of thing. That was my invitation kind of thing is you built this wall. Now I have to take it kind of thing. Right. Well, the cocky humans behind it don't oh, help anything. Absolutely either. not. I mean, you almost had Grokogamot in the fluff in the, the the Clash of Kings book getting ready to, to – I mean, he's, he's joking, of course, but is he really joking about – No, I didn't know if he was joking uh... – you know, I was waiting for a head to roll there somewhere. So reading that, <laughs> no doubt about it. That was great. I love that particular piece of fluff. So 
Very cool. Well, a lot of this, it sounds like, you know, would make for an excellent campaign. So, and I think, uh, Russ, you mentioned a couple of times that you've actually run some campaigns surrounding a siege. Yeah, I had one north-south where, you know, the end was the siege. And a lot of the guys, too, you know, will have siege games. And a lot of them will write stuff up, like I write stuff up. Like last Monday, played Greg, and he was Varanger in the castle, and I stormed it with uh, Skaven. With me, a lot of my armies have a leader and specific troops. And I'll give certain ones like names, and, and I'll write more or less my battle report is kind of a narrative-type report. With the Basilians, I've got Duchess um, uh, Dahlia, and I'm looking at that as with her and her troops. She's got like a an abbey, a fortified abbey. So I'm kind of building that. I'm going to play around with, with some some things like that. And it'll be more to, more to come, too. We're always working and uh, putting together like a paint and play that builds up into more of a large scale. It starts small, 500 points, 1,000 points, and every month add another 500 points to it till we get up to a certain size. Usually what kicks us off is in the fall. Start looking at the tournaments coming up, who's going, points, and then we'll try to stage it out so that we have armies built by the time of the next tournament we want to play at. And we'll integrate campaigns with uh, Siege here and there. I really want to try something like the Border Prince type idea again, because I think that, that would fit in real nice. Yeah, the thing I thought would be nice, too, is like if you're attacking your opponent's like headquarters or capital or something like that, you know, in a map-based campaign, and you hit the hit their core of their army or their capital, that that would be a siege battle. Right. I think that would fit in perfectly, as opposed to having an open bat, you know, open field fight. You would actually fight out a siege. I think that would be pretty awesome. Yeah, that would be a great opportunity for you to do that. So. Very, very cool. So, boy, it's been a nice long discussion talking about sieges. There's lots of possibilities here. We're hoping you guys get involved with the siege game or something like that at home. I know Colin pulls out our little castle downstairs, so I have given them these rules. And I, you know what? I have to check with him. I haven't seen him much lately. He's been doing a lot of school. So, but I have to check with him, see how he's doing on him. You know, we're supposed to be gearing up for a game. I was hoping to get it in before this particular recording, but I will certainly report on that later. But very, very excited about these Russ. And I did see that game. I believe that you played one of these at Adepticon last year, right? Yeah. Uh, you were you were there. We talked. I was there. Yep. And that was kind of the first time that we really have taken it out in public. Everybody seemed to like it pretty well overall. Oh yeah, it ran for a long time. There were a lot of happy faces there. And uh, we'll be doing that again at Adepticon. That will be awesome. So, do you have any other details on Mantic Open Night? The, the details have been a little slim. I know that the tickets are. $30, I think. They're available up on the Mantic Games website. It'll be the Saturday night of Adepticon. Yep. 
Ronnie is supposed to be there this year, and uh, barring tragedy again, and then uh, we'll go from there. But do you have any other information on that, Russ, or did I pretty much cover it there? I think you pretty much covered it. Pat just asked me to run the siege again, and that's about all I know. <laughs> be honest. <laughs> All righty. Okay, well, hey, guys, do we have any other shout-outs, uh, feedback, anything else? So, Ben, why don't you go ahead and start? All right, I was just going to let everybody know, so far the biggest feedback we've had for the next uh, Army to get the Narrative Workshop treatment was League of Rordia. Gearing up to start doing some research on that. Uh, if, if if anybody wants to jump in and or if anybody's adamantly opposed to the League of Rordia and wants something else... Uh, start a campaign or something like that because from the from the Facebook page poll we got it was overwhelmingly uh, League of Rordia with dwarves the closest behind that so if anybody wants to see anything else like that done let us know so that we know what what the listeners want to hear for for that kind of research and what kind of inspiration they're looking for with that. Yeah, well why don't you go ahead and toss a poll up on the Facebook countercharge Facebook page there. And uh, we'll take a poll, and if you want to talk to us here on the Narrative Workshop about Rordia, you know, toss your name in the hat, and we will see what happens. Sounds good. And I've just got a few things. Got a few tournaments coming up here in Omaha, Nebraska. We've got the March Hare, which is April 7th. We've got the Bug Eater, which is a two-day Masters qualifier, which is uh, June 2nd and 3rd. And then this winter, we've got the Warhammer Refugee Tournament, and that'll be December 1st. Uh, we also have the Outlanders has a Facebook page. Just look us up. It's just the Outlanders. And my email is isanti314 at gmail.com, and that's I-S-A-N-T-I-314. Russ will give me all that information, and I will go ahead and put that into the show notes uh, so you can access that over on the website, or if you use iTunes, you know, punch that up on the old smartphone there. But I uh, did see the March Hare information up on Facebook, so that information, if you go to our Facebook page or out to Twitter, I have already tweeted and posted that. So you can go ahead and uh, grab that information already. So Thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. Oh. Not a problem. Isn't Chris Kapsner the reigning champion of the Bug Eater? Or was that two years ago? Actually, he played, and I believe Travis was the one that took the overall. Yeah, I remember him being down there at Bug Eater, so I thought he took that out. That could have been two years ago. So, But, I mean, time has just morphed here with all this Kings of War goodness. As we're recording this, it is the Friday night before the Masters. So right now we have got Jeremy and Rob over there. Uh, Jeremy actually playing in the Masters, which is very cool. And for myself, hey, just all everything countercharged. So uh, we'll be checking it out. We do have our special surprise that was supposed to be released at the Masters, but looks like it's being delayed to the Blue City Brawl. So look forward to that podcast coming out and Hopefully we'll be releasing that upon the world at that time. That's as much as a hint as you're getting right now. <laughs> I'm going to put a shout out, you know, hopefully, Russ, uh, you'll be having the Counter Charger Award at your tournaments. So if you guys are doing Counter Chargers Awards, let me know. Uh, we always like to talk to the Counter Charger or, you know, tweet out who that is and, you know, give props to them. You know, we're kind of changing up a little bit how we're doing the Counter Charger. So if you are interested in having that at your tournament, 
go ahead and reach out to us and then we'll just talk about how we're going to do things like that. I'm trying not to mail stuff out. We're trying to work with you at a local level to put that together. As opposed to spending money on postage, we're trying to spend it on trophies. <laughs> so, Well, count me in for cool. March here. And since I have a lot to do with the bug eater, we'll just, we'll just have to start putting that one in, Mark. That sounds good to me, Russ. And then, of course, let us know. And if you do have your tournament results and things like that and you want to get that tossed around, please send that to us. We're happy to tweet, post, and everything else. So just to kind of help build the community even more than we have at this point. So I just love that stuff. So eventually we're going to get to the point where we have five different tournaments running every weekend, So which is just awesome. Appreciate that. Really appreciate that. All right. Well, hey, guys, it has been an awesome episode. Russ, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us this evening and uh, sharing your siege rules with the Kings of War community. We'll get those posted. And, you know, people, if you are out there playing Siege and stuff, take some photos, toss them up on Facebook, toss them up on Twitter. That'd be great. We'd love to see them. I'm sure Russ would love to see them as well. I sure would. I really appreciate it. Thanks again, Mark. This has been super. Oh, not a problem. Russ, we will see you at Adepticon. So, Ben, you're not rolling to Adepticon this year, are you? Probably not. That one's a little too close to uh, some other events going on with the family, but... I gotcha, I gotcha. So, but uh, it's not a bad drive for me, so I I tend to go every year. I've missed, uh, God, I think I've missed once since my daughter's been in kindergarten. So, you know, it's uh, was always an awesome trip for us. So I really, really enjoy going to Adepticon. Colin and I will be going this year, as my daughter will be going to some kind of band camp or something. So <laughs> she is going to miss this year. So the boy Wonder and I are going. So it should be fun. One of these days when I have my kid a little bit older, maybe we'll make the trip over if it's still going at that time. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, Ben, I am telling you what, there is nothing like gaming with the kids, and Russ will tell you the same thing. I tell you what, in, was it, 99, Grant came with me to Games Day in Baltimore when I was an outrider. The next year, remember Terry Mack? Absolutely. T-Mack all the way, man. He looked at me, and, and Grant said, throw a shirt on Grant. And so Grant and I ran, uh, we just ran tables with the different armies, how they'd have them set up. And we did that till the Outrider program went away. But yeah, there's nothing more fun than gaming with your kid. Uh, it really is. Absolutely. Yeah, Ben, I took uh, Colin on a tour of games days one time when he was three years old. So I, we went to all the games days and I put a little t-shirt together for him, like a concert t-shirt. That's you know, cool. he went to Baltimore and he went to Chicago and went to Toronto, you know, so it was a lot of fun. And it, it had on the front, my daddy's an outrider. So I brought him to the outrider picnic and everything else like that. I got some great pictures of him in the uh, Glen Burnie warehouse, helping the guys stack boxes. And uh, when he was in the metal room, uh, buying some models and stuff, so good stuff and uh started my daughter going to adepticon when she was in kindergarten and uh there was like one or two kids at adepticon that year and as she kept going every year she would play with me in a tournament and people would come up and give her t-shirts and all sorts of cool stuff and uh, and then more and more kids were coming and families and then my daughter made friends and they go swimming and they they had a blast, you know. And uh, now when you go to Adepticon, there's a lot of kids there. It's a lot of fun. And, it, you know, it's great taking a trip 
just dad and your son or daughter and just take that daddy and child trip and you know it's stuff they'll never forget so i highly encourage you to uh take that trip then i i really do too because there's a lot of fond memories in a lot of places yeah it's a good time especially the garage sale at adepticon that's pretty good Oh, yeah, that's a great place to get your kids some super cheap models to paint. Yeah. So, I mean, perfect, because you don't care about them. They're still okay, and if they come out decent, they can still put them in their armies and stuff. Always fun. So we'll definitely have to talk about that on another episode. So I know we've talked about kids and gaming before, but it's probably time for a refresh for that. So. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, hey, again, it's been an awesome episode, so... Russ, why don't you go ahead and take us out? And until next time, keep on countercharging. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by posting on our episode thread on the discussion forum found on manticgames.com. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.